Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June the 24th, 2015. This is episode 1597 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Wednesday, and our show today is going to be called Managing Chaos and the Permissivist Epidemic, also known as the Douchebag Epidemic. What is that all about? You'll find out more in a bit before I get into our topic today and introduce our special guest to you. Let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you and help sure, uh, help make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is a really great company. They've been with us a long time when we vetted them for the sponsorship program. We checked all the blade forums and things like that. And they turned out to be a really great company with just a stellar reputation in the industry. And KnifeKits.com makes it easy for you to learn the skill of knife crafting. It really does for you and maybe for you and your kids to learn that skill together. You can get basic kits that aren't much more complicated than doing, let's say, a, a model car that you would buy when you were a kid and glue together. Uh, you pick out some handle material, some bolsters, and things like that. And if you're not sure what you're doing, they have books and DVDs. They also have great stuff uh, where you can make things out of Kydex and learn that skill as well. America was a, a country that at one time had a hard-line skill set. Uh, people could do things in their own home without calling a guy. Uh, to fix the, you know, whatever it was that wasn't working in your home. Today, it seems like we've lost a lot of those skills. And one way to regain them is to start taking up small hobbies like this and learn these basic skills like fit and finishing, sharpening knives, etc. And hey, if you're a master bladesmith, they have some of the coolest exotic materials you can get your hands on. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Remember, they also do support the MSP or Member Support Brigade with a great discount for you. You can find out about that in the benefits section of your MSB. Sponsor of the day number two today is Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest company that I've ever had to endorse ever in my entire career. Um, it's really easy to endorse a company when you can look back and say to yourself, I've been this company's customer for over 20 years. That's what Backwoods Home is to me. 1994, I became a subscriber to Backwoods Home. I didn't even start the Survival Podcast till 2008. I was their customer for all of those years. In the early years of the Survival Podcast, a lot of the information that I shared with you, a lot of the teaching that I did came right out of Backwoods Home Magazine. They're an incredible company. And hey, if you haven't been a, a customer that long, consider going back and checking out some of their anthologies. They have anthologies going back to the very first year of public at Backwoods Home. If you want to get a subscription and you're a new subscriber, they have a deal for you in the Member Support Brigade as well. Backwoods Home is an amazing publication. If they weren't, I wouldn't have been their customer this long. It's great today that I can work with people like Dave Duffy and John Silvera, Masada Yub, and Jackie Clay, knowing that you know after reading them all those years, they're now part of what I do. It's just awesome. If you check out Backwoods Home, what you'll find is a publication, sort of kind of like Grit, Sort of kind of like Mother Earth News, with a lot more homesteading stuff in it, and with a libertarian flair. Check out BackwoodsHome.com today, and you'll see why I've been their customer for so very long. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year being 1597, because the episode is 1597. Today I have for you from Alex Shrugged at TSPWiki.com. A New Cavalry at Nakasaki, and The Awful Responsibility of Power. I also have Your Papers, Please, A License to Beg, 
And if money go before, always do lie open. I shall read for you today. Your papers, please. A license to beg. There are clear indications that begging has risen to the point that some cities like Amsterdam are issuing licenses to beggars. In Vienna, foreigners need a registration card to identify themselves. Surprisingly, few unlicensed beggars are sent to prison. About 2.7% of men and 3.7% of women. Prison sentences are short, less than four months. Those who are sent to workhouses are sent to a rasp house to turn wood into sawdust if they are men. Women who are sent to the spin house. Uh, public officials are certainly tracking foreigners so that the city won't become a magnet for the poor. Uh, my take by Alex Shrug. Basic good character seemed to be the criteria for whether you were sent to prison or to a workhouse, not whether or not this was your first, second, or 22nd time you were caught. This suggests that begging was considered normal and unavoidable because there was no work, and there hadn't been work for a long time. When begging becomes the norm, a debilitating process is set into motion that must be stopped. As Benjamin Franklin said, I think the best way of doing good to the poor is not making them easy in poverty, but leading or driving them out of it. In my youth, I traveled much, and I observed in different countries that the more public provisions were made for the poor, the less they provided for themselves, and of course became poorer. And on the contrary, the less that was done for them, the more they did for themselves and became richer. I agree. I agree, and it makes me think of comments that, that I made to you guys recently in a feedback show that if we are going to have a public welfare system of any kind, if we're going to say, okay, this person for a time needs our assistance, let's give him some money from the Treasury. Of course, it's not from the Treasury. It's money stolen from you and I. But again, when we talk about this, there's the way things should be and the way things are and the way things might be someday, but the way things could be in a relatively short period of time, at least progressing toward the way things should be in the longer term. So in the short term, the government's not going to stop stealing our money through taxation. They're not going to do it. They're not going to do this. It's going to happen. They are not going to stop redistributing wealth through a welfare state. They are not going to stop doing it. They are not going to stop doing it. They're not going to stop doing it. The only thing debatable at this time is how that would be done and how that would be managed. I think that we wouldn't be perfect, but I think we would be better off if to receive assistance you had to do something. There's a lot of things people could be doing. There's a lot of things people could be doing. And it would be much better to spend money and give people something to do in exchange for it than to give them money and not give them something to do in exchange for it. And it shouldn't be a lot of money. You know, it should be some approaching minimum wage. Um, you do that, and what it says is, if you want more, you're going to have to go get it. And I also think even those programs should have a limited time frame. Uh, because it is the type of thing that somebody might find a way to do. The problem is, here's the problem, I don't trust the government to do it. You, what you will end up with is an entire new force of government employees with union benefits instead of a, you know, somebody working at a rasp house or a spin house. But there's a lot of stuff that people that say they can't get a job or, or whatever could be doing to help others and to make our nation better. And it wouldn't really cost more money because we're already paying them to do nothing. I think quite a few of the people who are currently being paid to do nothing, if they were had the other the other choice was simply you will be paid to do something, they would decide what they're getting paid isn't enough for what they have to do, and they would go find something to do that paid better. There are some people that would just choose not to do, and they would stop costing us money at all. 
And there are a lot of people that would start doing and feel like, oh, wow, I, I, I actually can do something. I actually can be useful, and they would strive for more. And whatever number of people laid on that program for eternity, till they died, it would be less than the number of people that were paying now to do nothing, and at least they would be doing something. Again, that's not my perfect solution, but it's a solution that I think the average person would agree with, unless you've been completely brainwashed by the dichotomy, so maybe the average person wouldn't anymore. My take by Jack Spirico. Next up, I want to remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade. If you like what we do here at the Survival Podcast, you want the show to be around forever, the way you ensure that is join the Member Support Brigade. And in return, you get discounts to over 60 vendors selling the things you're probably buying anyway, such that your discounts will pay for your membership. I try to make MSB win-win-win. You win because you get to support the show, and you get your money back if you're buying stuff in the preparedness and home self-sufficiency world. I also figure it's a win for the vendors because they get business they wouldn't have otherwise. We call this incremental revenue, and it's a win for me because I get to continue doing the work that I love to do, which is helping you learn and develop your own skills and independence, and additionally helping you learn how to think for yourself because you live in a nation that has been designed to tell you how to think. That every single thing that comes in front of you is a choice of A or B. On that, I'd like to tell you about something that I put on Facebook today before I introduce our special guest and the butthurt reaction that it's already causing from some people. I found a picture of a cat you may know. That cat, not an actual cat, like a person you call a cat, Ulysses S. Grant, as in the former president, the 18th president of the United States. He was also the general that won the Civil War for the Union, preserving the Union in the name of breaking the bonds of slavery. Um, he was also a slave owner. He was the last president to have ever personally owned slaves during his life. That's something many people don't know. So I found this picture, and I wasn't really looking to do this meme. I just happened to see this picture, and it kind of reminded me of the Dosi Keys guy, right? The most interesting man in the world. So I made this meme, and this is what it says. I don't always save the Union from the bonds of slavery, But when I do, I make damn sure to have first been a slave owner myself. General Ulysses S. Grant, 18th President of the United States. And I have a link for source data to prove that I didn't pull this fact out of my ass. It actually is a real fact, and it's a government website with fact on it. When I posted it on Facebook, I posted it as follows. In all, 12 U.S. presidents were slave owners at one time in their life. Not one of them ended up as part of the Confederacy. The last was General U.S. Grant. You may know him as the general that saved the Union. Our 18th president, the man who presided over Reconstruction and making sure freed slaves were treated as equals, or maybe even just that guy from the $50 bill. One of the uh, commenters already said that, you know, attacked me and said, well, that flag that you hold so dear, meaning, of course, I guess the Confederate flag. I don't hold the Confederate flag dear. I, I, I don't care at all about the Confederate flag, really. Um... I think all the hype over the Confederate flag right now is just to distract you from, well, there's this little thing the government's doing right now, this trade agreement. I, I don't know if you guys are aware of that because, you know, it's really important that we all argue about a flag. Yeah, this little thing called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, it's uh, something your Republicans, you know, blocked uh, many times because, you know, it was 
bad for the country until you gave them the Senate and they already had the House. And now they have a majority and Obama wants his trade deal. Um, they just gave it to him. They gave him what's called fast-track authority on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And uh, what this is going to do is basically be like NAFTA on steroids. It's going to cost the United States jobs. It's going to give away a lot of our national sovereignty as to how we handle imported and exported goods. It's going to prevent people from you know, doing things like knowing the origin of where food they ate came from. Yeah. But, you know, it's more important that we all argue about what flag freaking Carolina has. Uh, yeah. Um, so when I put out this meme, it was more of, do you know? Did you know? And people immediately need jerk to, it must be supporting one side or other of a current issue, rather than saying, okay, here's a piece of information. And I can use this information however I choose to use it. And that's what a lot of what I try to do here is. It's not to sway your opinion. It's just so you actually have all the facts and have all the information. There's a lot of people that would say, well, of course everybody knows that former presidents were slave owners. Duh, Washington, Jefferson. I mean, but that's, 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 that's ancient history. Um, but when you get up toward the era of the Civil War, people lose sight of reality. My personal stance on the Civil War is this. First of all, it wasn't a Civil War. It wasn't a Civil War. It was a, it was a war between states. It was a war between a Confederacy that left and a Union that refused to, to allow the Confederacy to leave. Regardless of who was right or wrong about what issue, that's what the war was. A, a Civil War is a war for control. So if, if the Civil War had actually been a Civil War, the South would have invaded the North and tried to take control of the whole country. That would be a civil war. What the South said is, under the Constitution, we have the right to secede. We've done so. Leave us alone. That we created this union, and we thereby have the power to dissolve it, and we have chosen to walk away. And the Union said, no, you don't, and invaded the South. That's the facts of the Civil War. Again, the slavery issue is moot to whether or not that's the case. You get that? Okay, now here's the next part. Was the Civil War about slavery? The answer to that is not yes or no, it's yes and no. But the facts remain. The Union was at war for two years before it officially abolished slavery, before Lincoln, Lincoln uh, did the Emancipation Proclamation. And Lincoln's plan, after the Civil War was over, was to deport all the black people to a colony in Central or South America, believing that whites and blacks could never live alongside each other. These are just facts. What do they mean about today? They don't mean a lot about today. But they mean a lot about how we perceive how we got to today. And I just think that people are better off knowing the truth rather than the false truths and the half-truths that are handed to them in our so-called educational system. I'm just saying. Anyway, with that, let's get on to better things and bring our special guest on. Our special guest today is uh, a gentleman named Trevor Grice. He's a licensed clinical psychologist. He's here to talk to us today about managing chaos and what he calls the permissiveness epidemic. And the reason he says we should be talking about managing chaos is because chaos will come. That is a constant. It's going to happen. How we manage it is important. And as far as permissiveness, it's about parenting 
so that we have well-informed youth who grow into strong adults at a time when we, as we grow older, will need them the most. With that, hey, Trevor, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack. Thanks for having me. Hey, I'm glad you're here. This is a topic I, I think we've kind of talked to somebody with your professional background maybe once before. Uh, it's similar to half of what our conversation is going to be about today. We've never really had anybody on to talk about managing chaos, which is going to be our lead topic today, uh, which I think is awesome because you put it in your, uh, in your guest form that it's, a, you know, avoiding chaos is about as uh, likely as rainbow farting unicorns or something like that. Uh, and I think it is. I think we all have to deal with chaos. This last two weeks, I've dealt with a crap ton of chaos, some that I've invited into my house with saying, hey, let's remodel the kitchen. That's a good idea. And, you know, the chaos of having an idiot hit me with his truck, which is uninvited chaos. So we all have it. And I think this is a really important topic because we prep for what? Chaos, right? Absolutely. Um, yep. So I'm thinking that's a great topic. But before we get into that, um, you're a licensed clinical psychologist. Now, I don't think most kids, when they're you know eight years old, picking their nose, think I'm going to grow up and be a licensed clinical psychologist. Uh, and we all come <laughs> to our walk through these different wonky paths. So, can you just kind of give the audience kind of your background? How did you end up where you are? Both as kind of someone that, that's doing the homesteading thing as a prepper, plus you're this uh, psychologist as well. Yeah, I. Uh... You know, uh, like most kids, the uh, whole uh, professional baseball player thing didn't really pan out as I was hoping. Um, but, you know, I, uh, I'm i the oldest of three kids, and, you know, one of the things that my parents instilled in me, because uh, I think their parents instilled in them, was how to work hard. And that usually meant uh, our Saturdays were spent out in the woods hauling wood. And, you know, at that time, I didn't really like it. But, you know, now you look back at that and see what it was for. Um you know, went to school, was a good student, all that kind of stuff. Had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I was following the path that people said. You should be a computer scientist. You should do these things. This is where the jobs are going to be. Didn't know I probably should go to college. Um, so went through that. Essentially, I look back and realize I survived high school. Um, and that's kind of what I tell a lot of clients these days is you just got to get through it. it you got to survive it um, because it's, it's tough. It's tough. Um, knowing knowing what I know now, I, I was depressed back then, you know, and um, I think that's pretty obvious, and I see a lot of kids these days with that. Went on to college, and computer science really didn't pan out, and um, just more math than I really wanted to do. I love math, but not that kind of math, and <laughs> psychology was easy, you know, it was just interesting, it was all the stuff we didn't know, so um, I said, ah, I can do this, until I realized that about the fourth year that, you know, a four-year degree in psychology is about worth almost nothing. It was really just a debt certificate <laughs> for the most part. Um, so we went Aren't on most and, of them? Well, these days it's starting to get to be that for sure. Um, and but psychology is really up there with, uh, you know, I mean, essentially it's it's not worth a whole lot. So I knew I had to do something different. Uh, my backup option was go back and work landscaping with my father. That that was always a good backup option, but. At the same time, this is where like serendipity comes in. Our our school, our our my university started a doctoral program, and when doctoral program in psychology gets started, they're <laughs> they're they're pretty desperate actually because they have no reputation. So they're going to take anyone that applied, and um, I'm pretty sure that's how I got in. Um, my resume wouldn't have really gotten me into any other programs, I don't think. Um, and I wasn't ready for landscaping just yet. So went, went to that first year school, realized it was hard, um, thought about quitting, but 
they went back to perseverance and hard work and said, hey, let's get through this and didn't know what I was going to find. Um, so I you know, ended up with that. Internship took me to Utah, uh, became familiar with the Mormon culture out there and their ideas of preparedness. Uh, it wasn't really for us at that time, but I, I respected what they were doing. And um, we had our kids out there and that's out there is where we met. We kind of got into the whole Dave Ramsey thing and really got our financial house in order. And while it took nine years, uh, this February we finally paid off all debts and just the house. But you know, all college loans gone, all that other stuff's gone. Um, we didn't do it by his program exactly. We hybridized it for what we wanted. And uh, then we moved back to Michigan. And as most people are facing these days, we got back there. Two young kids. My wife's working. Two kids in daycare, and she's. She's, you know, bringing home 20 bucks after paying for daycare. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's like, why are we doing this? You know, we took parenting very seriously and we're trying to do the best we can. And, you know, we're, we're netting 20 bucks. So she kind of begrudgingly decided to stay home. It's really not her makeup. It's not what she wanted to do, but she's kind of really thrived into that. And in doing that, she started looking into homesteading and preparedness and all that. And then she had to start dragging me along. So, Unlike most stories, I'm I'm the follower in this one. She's the one that kind of opened the door and kind of had to bring me along. So um, since then, we've started homeschooling the kids because kids are sad at home, when they're coming home from school because they're getting yellow lights for being boys and uh, <laughs> you know you know that whole thing like what'd you do I I ran in the hall you're five like <laughs> five year olds run everywhere um, so. Anyway, so we started the whole school thing. I just got to real quick tell a quick story yeah. about my son when he was little, because this is not new. My son's 25 now, <laughs> yeah. right? So this is when he was in, like, first grade. He came home one day, and he was upset, and he was crying. And it, it took so much to get him to tell us what what happened that my wife was afraid that, like, somebody, like, molested him or something, because he was like, if I tell you, you can't call the police, and she's freaking out. And what it turned out is instead of a yellow lighter card or whatever, they had this thing called standing on the line. So when they were at recess, there was this line. And if you got in trouble, you had to stand on it. Well, he, he and some other boys got in trouble because they were throwing rocks. They were not throwing rocks at each other. They were not throwing rocks at the school. They were at the tree line throwing rocks at the trees. Oh, so they had trees. to stay on the line, <laughs> which is in of itself a little bit ridiculous. But the fact that this kid was so worried that he was in further trouble for throwing rocks at a tree. I mean, it makes your case for the public school system, but it makes your case as of almost 20 years ago. Right. I mean, and it, I mean, we can think I can think back to when I'm in school and, and some of the silly stuff like I just don't do this or else you'll be in big trouble. And. Or you'll get the line of shame or something. You know what I mean? And How about it'll go on your permanent record? <gasps> oh, my goodness. And oh. I still have not seen my permanent record. I don't know where it is. It must be somewhere. Probably, what was your actual thing? Oh, uh, it, it, it's probably with Sasquatch, who's riding a rainbow farting unicorn. And if anybody gets that picture taken, uh, maybe he has my permanent record with him. Yeah, it's 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 in his satchel. You know, it's, uh, you'll see a satchel in that picture. <laughs> All the permanent records are in a satchel on Sasquatch's shoulder as he rides a rainbow farting unicorn. And I, I am seeing a vision of a TSP gear uh, patch of a satchel toting Sasquatch riding a unicorn. I I think that's going to happen now, and it's all because of you. 
Yeah, the the keeper of permanent records is the Sasquatch <laughs> on on the Rainbow Farting Unicorn. I th- I think I mean that makes a lot of sense actually. So <laughs> so in all of this, uh, you eventually got to a point where it made sense that you could develop a practice for yourself. Just for people to understand what it takes to do that, could you give the like the elevator version of how you get to the point where that actually works? Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a long process. I mean, like I said, at, at the four year mark of college, you, you've only just got started. I mean, it, it was six more years of college after that. You got internship. You, I mean, you got a lot of hoops to jump through. And then the big one is the licensing exam, which is um, it's the greatest fear of everybody. And you know, you just got to power through. And then after that, you are officially denoted as an expert, as a master, um, even without doing the ten thousand hours. You, you know, and Essentially, what it means is, is you can accept insurance now is really what it comes down to. So um, we, uh, when we were in Utah and had our kids, we, we realized that Michigan was back where we wanted to be. Um, we loved it in Utah, but, I mean, we could move back to our hometown and be within five miles of all four grandparents. And that was important for us. So came back, and we have an agency in our town that we work, that I work for now, and they brought me on. And so I don't really have my own private practice. I kind of work with an agency, but... Um, getting that started is is really just about you know meeting with people and kind of getting word of mouth going around and you know just trying your best to help. Um, I think it's important you know as a psychologist uh, you know some people we get the question all the time well what's a, what's the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist and you know psychiatrists are medical doctors medicine that's essentially almost all that they do is medicines and you know no medicines on I, I don't prescribe anything like that I'm not a pro pusher. Uh, it's all about trying to help the individual um, work through their issues. Cool, man. So as as we look at your main subject today, we want to start out with let's get into managing chaos. And I think that a lot of people think that the way we deal with chaos is through control. And, and the truth is it can't be controlled. That's That's why it's chaos, right? That's what makes it chaos. So what is the difference between trying to control a situation and trying to manage a situation? Yeah, that's where the Sasquatch came in, right? Like, yeah. The idea of trying to control something is like trying to get that picture of with a satchel, too, mind you. So um, <laughs> this, this, the difference between you know, control and management, the difference between chaos and control is this idea that you know, we see control all over in our world. Everybody wants to control things. They, they want this perfect response, you know, 100 percent. You know, they, they want everything to be perfect. And in our lives, if we look back, nothing has ever been that. Uh, you get four brand new tires and one blows as you pull out of the tire shop. I mean, that's chaos. And it's everywhere. Uh, I, one thing I, I sit down with clients to get them to think this way sometimes is, is uh Okay, so what's the what's the best thing you can do in order to not die in a plane crash? All right? So, so Jack, what's the best thing you can do to not die in a plane crash? Don't get on a plane. Don't get on a plane, right? And so if you don't get on a plane, what are the chances that you will die in a plane crash? Pretty low unless one crashes into you. Exactly. Right. <laughs> and that is chaos, right? I mean, the epitome of chaos is the plane that falls out of the sky on your head. And it's pretty low. But you can still die in a plane crash by never getting on there. And and that's the example because people think, I will control never dying on a plane crash and I will 
pull a John Madden and ride my bus all over the place. And, you know, a plane can dive right into his bus someday, you know. So this idea of control has us kind of always scrambling and always feeling like we need more and we need more. Whereas if you look at it and say, there's chaos out there, it's going to happen, we tend to take more of a management approach um, for those that do it. And, and when you do that, then you realize that by getting not getting on an airplane, you're managing your ability to not die in a plane crash, but you're also accepting the fact that without knowing it, one could fall right on you. So, <laughs> so how does the brain react to these two different mindsets? Then how how do we how do we basically engage on the side of management and let go of the side of a, a false belief in control? Let's let's take uh, big agriculture then. Okay, so. They're in the line of control. I think we could all agree that, right? When there's a problem, we have to try to control it. We have to make it go away. So we're going to invent a new poison, a, a new spray. We're going to we're going to invent new plants that that can't die from it. Um, that that the that the bugs won't won't like. But it creates all these other problems, and and that's how. I mean, we when we try to solve problems by by trying harder, we end up getting into this almost tug of war. Um, Essentially, we, we, we get, go back to the old uh, quote, which I think Einstein stated, where, you know, we just try over and over to do the same things and expect different results, and yet they don't happen. So when we start looking at this idea of, of instead of trying to control things and manage them, what we end up seeing is, is like, there's actually, we, we assess things better. We adjust to things better. We, we don't work as hard. We, we just actually let things be more and um, knowing that it's never going to be perfect, but we do have the ability to make things better and to really impact our lives, but without the expectation. I think that's a big thing. Control has expectations. I expect it to be um, perfect. Whereas management kind of says, you know what? Failure can happen. And when it does, I'm going to roll with it and see what happens. Okay. But, isn't it a little counterintuitive then, since we're talking about reducing anxiety and stress, and at the same time we're talking about just accepting the fact that shit can happen to you any day? So mm -hmm. how does that? How do those two sides justify? When when you're trying to control things, typically, it, it often leads to more misery and fear because you just become aware of what you can't do perfectly. And when you in, are in, when fear gets out of control, I mean that's the epitome of anxiety. And so, by embracing control, by by choosing that, you're actually inviting anxiety and fear into your life. You're providing it a place to fester and grow, and continuously remind you of how much you suck at stuff. And yet, those of us that you know, those that try to embrace chaos, they already know they suck at a lot of stuff and they're okay with it. So they try to manage what they can and, you know, focus on the things that they can. Um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's not a, I mean, I'm kind of talking about two extremes here and there's, you know, the vast majority of people lie somewhere in the middle of this. But, you know, if we, if we do look at these two different ends, you're, the idea of chaos leads you to actually kind of be more in contact with your with your true self. It offers a feeling of peace, um, whereas control is just a recipe for failure. And yet you don't expect the failure, so when it happens, it just totally, you know, it kind of hits you right in the gut, and you don't know what to do. Yeah, I think there's a big 
a big case for that in like so my recent experience with you come around a corner and here's a truck that's going to hit you right yeah it's mm -hmm. not it's not this this guy might hit me it's okay we're going to get hit mm -hmm. and having less than a second to do what you can with it if you don't believe it can ever happen you'll probably just freeze up and whatever you could have done to mitigate it which in my case was slow the hell down and get over as far as you can, as fast as you can, without giving the guy your door, right? That right. was it. That was, And that was all that could be done. But if you only get a second to make that decision, and you've already convinced yourself that either nothing's going to happen or I can handle anything that happens no matter what it is, and there's, no, there's nothing out of my control, then that half second it takes to get your shit together does away with whatever you could have done to deal with it. Right. The most dangerous person on the road is the person that thinks they're in total control. You know, and, and I think, you know, when I was listening to you, your kind of playback of that story a couple episodes ago, it, the one thing that struck me is, is like, you were ready for chaos. Yeah. Because if, if you were thinking, I am in control, I can manage everything, then it could have been way worse, you know, based upon how you were describing it. So that particular experience right there shows that you knew that you didn't have control in that situation, but you were managing it the best you could. And so when it did happen, you did manage it the best you could. Exactly. And I'm not saying I did it perfect. I'm saying I did it the best I could under the circumstances. And, you know, some guy that drove NASCAR cars for uh, a living may have been able to somehow not kill himself, get out of the way, and get around the guy. I don't know. I mean, I'm not, you know, those guys are basically the professional athletes of drivers. Yeah, I, I have this picture of like Jeff Gordon flipping it up on two wheels and of yes, um, evasively avoiding it, and you're like, whoa, you know. And, but I'm not going to so. do that, and I and that's part of chaos is knowing your own limitations, right? So, mm -hmm. um, if somebody tries to attack me physically, I can defend myself to a degree, but I can't defend myself the way, let's say, Mike Tyson could. Right. Exactly. So, yep. mm -hmm. so just because Mike Tyson could drop the guy or my buddy Valerie Azanoff could probably kill the guy three times before he hit the ground doesn't mean that I can or ever will be able to. So I have to deal with that chaotic situation at my level. And so does everybody else, which means everybody's chaos is a little different. It is. And if you bring up Tyson, like back in his heyday, nobody thought that he could be beat. Like, I mean, he everybody felt when he stepped in the ring, he had control of it. That's not the way it played out, you know, and who knows what happened to cause that to be the case. But most likely there was some chaotic event that put him off his game or something. And boom, he's got a loss and everybody's in shock. Oh, he, you know, Iron Mike took one down. Yeah. And you know for a I mean? guy that no one expected to do it, it wasn't like, okay, this might be the guy. It was like, this is going to be another one of these things where, you know, people are like 90 seconds in going, I didn't get my money's worth out of this. He knocked the guy out again. And it kind of sort of almost was, but it was the other way around. Like, that was not the guy that anybody would have ever thought. And, you know, he didn't stick around as a champion for very long. So it wasn't like he was really that good. It was literally something chaotic in, in Tyson's world. Absolutely. And, and and it could have been that he that Tyson just became complacent. You know what I mean? Like, I can control this and I don't need to train well for this guy. And he he embraced he let chaos come in. You know, what I mean, he, he let more of it come in rather than managing it and being prepared, you know, which is kind of where the whole conversation here is about preparedness. He, he invited it in. And then then now we know what happened, you know. So, um, you know, the, we, you know, there could have been some other chaotic event. Maybe, you know, maybe he had an infection of some sort. Maybe he, 
yeah, who knows? We don't know, and, and we may never. So, um, frankly, I don't even know if it really matters anymore. But no. um, you know, so yeah, it's except uh, for his famous quote: "Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth." <laughs> Which is chaos, right? That's the whole point. Like that was like him not following his own advice. Like something can always go wrong, so you have to adjust and replan as you go, and that's part of management. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, the fact is, is if you're standing in front of somebody, no matter how calm they are, if you're managing the situation, you're, that person can punch you in the mouth, you know. And if you don't think they will, well, then. Then Tyson's Tyson's quote reigns supreme, you know. Yeah, interesting because what I've always said is the person you trust the most can do the most harm, mm-hmm. right? So I mean, if when people tell me like you know the, the separate bank account thing with with husbands and wives, it's like you don't trust this person with your money, but they could crack you in the head with a barbell while you sleep any night, right? That's that doesn't make a lot of sense to me that we don't trust each other with our finances, but. I'll lay down and go to sleep next to you every single night when you could set the bed on fire or or kill me in my sleep. And 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 the reason that we're so vulnerable in front of our spouses is because if we didn't trust them, we wouldn't marry them. So the more we trust the person, the more harm they could do if they're not the person we think they are, which is part of what makes trust difficult. And which is, you know, you brought up the whole dual finance thing before. And when I was listening to it, I was like, like, that is the absolute most truthful thing. I mean, I, and this is coming from a guy who sits with couples who are having marital issues. And I have, I've never seen that work out. I mean, it does not work out. It, you cannot, I mean, a good marital relationship requires trust almost more than anything. And if you can't trust them with finances, then there's this huge barrier in, then all of a sudden it's like somebody's spending something else and I didn't know you did this and who paid this bill and you're you're in, you're inviting chaos in to ruin your marriage. I'll tell you what else I've I've noticed with it. Even when the marriage works, however we define that, in other words, 25 years from now they're still together, they never win financially. That's never the couple that's going into a little bit of an early retirement and well off. That never ever works out that way that both sides or either side really manages their money for retirement well. Yeah, they're, they're both, they have so many financial redundancies that they waste money on the same things. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, it's like they're doing, when you put it all in the same pot and use it together, then you can efficiently manage it. But if, I mean, essentially both people are buying the kids the same movie or the same video game because the kids and we might even get into this later, how, you know, manipulative kids can actually be, you know, they'll figure out that they have two finances and they figure, well, if I tell both parents, they'll both buy me something and then I get two of the same thing, you know, so now they have two video games instead of the one that they, you know, still probably shouldn't have had because they should have bought it themselves. But, um, you know, that's beside the point. Yeah, definitely. Um, but kind of what we've been talking about so far with the whole chaotic thing, though, with management and responding to it, it's been like the... I have a split second to make a decision type of thing. But I actually think sometimes that chaos can actually be a kind of like a black hole process, a slow thing. Like your life is completely falling apart from chaos, but it's not falling apart in three seconds. And that can actually be worse if not properly managed because there are plenty of times for the person to lie to themselves and still say that they're in control. And that that can be almost terminal for, and maybe not life, but terminal for quality of life. 
Yeah, I mean, I one of the first things I do with some of my clients that come in here is I say, we're not going to say the seven-letter swear word. And they look at me and I say, it begins with C, and then they start thinking about it. I say, we have to think of the word control as as Sasquatch riding the rainbow farting unicorn. It, it doesn't exist. Like, that word in and of itself needs to be gone because it, it lulls us into thinking that we actually have it and we actually need to embrace the fact that we don't in order to be adequately prepared. And so, yeah, the person that thinks they're in control and they have this slow spiral, they end up justifying, oh, it's not so bad, and, oh, you know, we'll figure it out later, or the next paycheck will make it okay. And then, you know, seven paychecks later, the hole is deeper, and they don't really know why, and they try to control harder, which inevitably causes the spiral to go faster. Definitely, and I think maybe there's a lot more that can go wrong So for a person, because if you're faced with like that split second decision, your mind at some level takes over. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like like there's like part of what you do is conscious and part of it's completely unconscious. But when you're not immediately threatened and it's like you get a letter that says that you're, let's say, being audited by the IRS Mm -hmm. and a person says, ah, right. Or something like that. Or, you know, you you sit down and you look at your debt. And it's $61,000, and there's literally nothing to show for it. Eh, it'll all work itself out. And that type of complacency when you've lost control. So let's say there is, there is certain things of your life you do control. You don't control society. You don't control the world. But you do, on some level, control how you respond. When you've lost even that control and believe that you still have it, you can just screw up everything. It's 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 a domino effect, you know, and and all of a sudden you're like, why is my wife leaving me, and why do my kids hate me, and why am I getting poor performances at my job? You know, it it affects you in your in a core way. I mean, you all of a sudden you lose hope, you know. I mean, you lose you lose confidence in self because you, you're I'm working hard, I'm trying hard, I'm doing the best I can, I'm trying my best to control it, and in fact you're really missing the whole point, which is it's not about control, it's about it's about a whole different thing. So, um, and I see that every day. Every day, people are trying to control stuff, and they wonder why they keep getting further and further away from what they want. And they're going essentially they're they're going about it all wrong. You know, I mean, it's really what it comes down to. You know, it's not about control. It, it you know, it's the one thing about if I control this, I will not have fear, right? I will if it's controlled, then I will be safe. Fear is essential. Fear is necessary. I mean, I, I tell people all the time, well, I, if I could dig in your brain and remove the fear and then put you in front of a grizzly bear, the, you're going to last a whopping two seconds because you're yeah. going to go give it a, you're going to go give it a hug, you know, and we need it. But we also need to manage it, you know, and use it for the right thing, you know, like today. So, you know, hey, you're, I'm going to do an interview with Jack Spearco. So I'm nervous. But the fact is, is is it fear that I'm nervous or am I excited? They're, they're the same thing, you know, and most people don't realize it's all about perspective. Um, if, you know, my wife jumped out of an airplane with a parachute, mind you, so it was all good. That's why she's still here. But the, the thing is, is like she was so excited to do that. She wanted to skydive. And she talked about this, and I had no no desire. I'm, my personal opinion is, is why would I jump out of a perfectly good airplane with a perfectly good parachute? Because if the perfectly good airplane ceases to be perfectly good, I still have a perfectly good parachute to leave the vehicle, right? So why would I even want to do that? 
But the fact is, is she's describing how she feels. I had sweaty palms. My stomach was, my blood pressure was up. I was sweating. It was so exciting. My breathing was shallow. And I'm like, that's exactly how I would feel. But mine would be fear because I don't want to do that. It's all about perspective. And so fear can be transitioned into something exciting. It can be transitioned into something, it can be good if you use it in the right way. Or if you think it's bad, then you will use it as such, and all of a sudden those feelings cause you to freeze rather than get to work or or move in a direction. And um, that's where perspective on what you're feeling plays a huge role. And, I mean, we have to balance this at all times with some semblance of reality. So, for instance, in a few weeks, I'm going to get on an airplane with my wife, and we talked about airplanes already, and I'm going to fly to to Florida, and I'm going to lay on the beach for a week and a half and not give a damn about what goes on back here. Yep. And I'm going to get there on a plane. And, and I'm, so I'm going to go blasting across the sky in a pressurized metal tube where I have zero control over everything. I don't mm-hmm. get to decide what to do if an emergency happens. Some guy I don't know and have to trust is well-trained gets to make that decision. I could, to avoid that fear, get in my car and drive. It will take four total days away from my vacation that could be spent on the beach with my wife. And the actual reality is I'm more likely to die during that car drive than I am in that airplane. So even though if a plane crashes, you got a problem, the odds are actually better toward taking the plane ride. And I think many times when people fear doing something because they might fail, their odds of success are actually higher than their odds of failure. So it's worth taking the risk. And then it's also what are the consequences of failure? Right, so yeah. let's say you got on here and you, it's not going to happen because you're doing fine. But let's say you gave a shitty interview. Right, well, what's mm-hmm. the worst that's going to happen? I'm not going to come to your house and punch you in the face. <laughs> I'm just going to go. You know what, man? This this isn't working out. Um, I'm not going to run this interview. Yeah, right? exactly. and there's not going to be a terrible result either way. So I think a lot of times in life we have, and especially with our kids today, the fear of failure is is not only too much fear. But it's a, it's an irrational fear. Like, well, what happens if? Well, nothing, right? Nothing really happens. We've like my son, tore, you know, tore up over standing on the line. Big deal, right? Or, right. Or, or your kid being upset because they get a yellow light, whatever the hell that means, you know? Yeah. So so I'm I'm in a college. I'm working in a college counseling center, and I got this kid sitting across me, right? And I'm like, so what are we gonna talk about today? Oh, I'm gonna fail out of school. Well, okay, well, we probably should talk about that. That So what's going on? Well, I should be taking a test right now. It's like, what? So when we break it down, this young man sitting across from me is missing his test because he's afraid of failing, hmm. which is essentially creating exactly what his fear is. And so when I break it down, I say, well, did you study? Yes, I did study. Okay, so he's afraid of trying is really what it comes in failing as opposed to just failing. If he walked, but what, and I just try to break it down. I was like, well, if you got a 50%, like you're still passing this class based upon the points you told me. Like you failed the test, but the math still works out. Oh, I guess I didn't think about that. Like he was, this, this kid was so paralyzed by the fear of failure and that his efforts were to be to no avail that he chose to not even try it in effort and, and, and essentially created what he was afraid of but now he could say well i didn't even go so who knows what would have happened you know and and we hear that all i hear that all the time you know it's all around us 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that like with the testing, I think part of that is we're doing this to these kids, these uh, these standardized tests, and these teachers constantly telling them, if you fail, you don't go to the next grade, you fail. You don't. Like by the time they get out of school, the last thing they want to even think about is another freaking test. Right, yeah, and, and which, I don't know, I haven't taken a whole lot of tests since my last licensing exam, and it seems like everything's going okay, you know, but, yeah, but you know, testing is such a big deal. It becomes, you know, I mean, we have a, well, there's the SAT and the ACT, right? And here in Michigan, the schools um, have, they provide the ACT, you know, the college prep exams for the students. You, you take it in school. You know, when I was there, you had to go sign up and go in on a Saturday to take care of it, and you, you paid for it yourself. But now the schools, they do you a huge favor, so nice of them, that they're going to pay for this test. So I got this young lady in front of me, and she is petrified of this test is she is stressed out beyond belief she has to pass it she has to get a good score what do you need to get oh i want to get an 18 i want to get a 20 who knows what the score was and i was like eh, we'll call her Susie. as Susie, but you're going to the local community college i know but i need to get the score it's like community colleges don't give don't give a crap about your act scores you're breathing and have a pulse and you have the ability to pay that that's good enough for them and she looked at me and was like you're being forced to take a test and freak out about something for a college prep that you don't even need. I mean, this girl kind of had her stuff together. She was going to go to community college, pay cheap rates for a year, maybe two, and then transition through the side door of a university where you show them your transcript. Hey, you got A's and B's. You're a college student. Come on in. You don't, we don't need to know anything else. But she was freaked out about a test that she was told she had to take. I mean, like stress to the point of, you know, digestive issues and headaches. And it was... You know, and that's what the kids are facing. It literally doesn't matter. I mean, not not on some ethereal level. It's not really that important long term. You'll get them next time, kiddo. It literally, absolutely does not matter. Period. The end. Infinity. No, it doesn't. It's ever gonna give a shit what her ACT score was. Period. And if she ever wanted to get into university. She would be able to take that test again after two years of community college anyway, and they wouldn't care then because she'd have two years of college already to be judging her grades. So there's like no way that Sasquatch is ever showing up with that ACT score in his satchel, and she's freaked out over it. Universities want college students, and the reason they want these tests is because they have no idea what's coming out of high school. If you go to the community college and you get good grades, they're going to look at that and say, well, can you pay? Do you have a pulse? Okay, you, <laughs> you know what I mean? Come on in. Uh, can you get a Pell Grant? Can you get some, you know, can Sally you get help money. you? Yeah, yeah. you get Do you money ha- and, and fund our new wing of the science building. Yeah, right. you're so, in. So they don't, I don't even know, my guess is, is at some point you don't even need that if you go the more, you know, side side doorway instead of the front doorway, which we're all told we have to do. Freshman orientation, walk through the doors, everybody's, you know, confetti and all that kind of crap, you know. But um, there's a more efficient and better way to do college if you're going to do it than that way. You know, I mean, that's kind of the – I'm not saying that's the wrong way. It is the way I did it. But um, if I could go back, I, I would do it differently, um, at least for the first couple of years because it would have saved some money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there is that. Um, but I mean, what can a person do with all of this to to start managing their life and regarding their their mental health? Uh, how how do we start to actually put a management process into chaos, which is what the world's all about, uh, and at the same time accept that chaos is real and it just is. Well, it's 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 like you just said. It's it's acceptance. But you also have to come at it 
I encourage people to come at it from an understanding of what may be actually happening to them. Uh, so back in the 50s and 60s, Abraham Maslow created this I, this idea, this hierarchy of needs. It's a really fancy pyramid. It's not a it's not a plate, you know, not like the food plate, right? It's a it's a pyramid, and it and it has five levels. And in what he what he theorized, and and really not a whole lot of people have come to disagree with him. Um, and the thing about Maslow is, is he was in he was not trying to deal with illness. He wanted he was in this kind of positive psychology movement. He wanted to take people to a different level. Do you know what I mean? Like. This, it's kind of a novel thing, like, oh, you're depressed here, let's treat you like depressed. Like, hey, you're depressed, let's drag you out of this and, and get you to be, you know, self-sufficient or, you know, something like that. So on, on this base of Maslow's hierarchy needs are, are the fairly obvious physical needs that we need, the, the six things that we need. Uh, I always thought it was five. I had a client tell me once, well, we need to take a dump sometimes. I was like, you're absolutely right. If we don't do that, we will die. So it's, you know, the things we have to prepare for, right? Food, water, shelter, air. Then the other two that people miss, I already men- mentioned excrete. You know, we have to get the poisons out of our body. If we don't do that, it won't, won't work well. And then the final one is sleep. You know, sleep is, is extremely important. The next level up is this idea of um, the security. Okay. And this is where fear comes in. Like you just, it, now that we have these things, we want to feel safe. And, and what I kind of see is going on is how the news is attacking that. Um, making you not feel safe. Everything is about fear, right? Yeah, so no, if definitely. We, if we want to take a real kind of tin hat way of looking at this, what if they've got Maslow's pyramid sitting there and saying, okay, well, we can't really, we really can't effectively take away their shelter and all this kind of stuff without really drawing too much attention to us. What if we hit them on the second level so they can't grow past that? We'll hit them on fear. We'll, we'll make them feel that they're not secure. We'll make them feel that Everything around them is dangerous. Um, that these two these two killers from New York or wherever that escaped from prison are outside your door right now because we have no idea where they are. Um, that you know who knows they might be caught by the time this goes out. But you know it's the front page on CNN. There's a bloody sock and there's DNA and they could be right outside your door. The fact that it's news and this is kind of a comment that I heard on a recent podcast by Bruce Schneier is that the fact that it's news means you shouldn't worry about it. Right. I mean, <laughs> nobody puts on their Johnny went to the bathroom today. Good job. You know, I mean, that that the, the fact that it's news means it is odd and weird enough that it will not really affect you. And which is why I tell most of my clients who are struggling with this is don't watch the news at all. Don't yeah. no, no newspaper, no radio, no, no, no nothing will come from this. And they say, well, what, how am I going to know about the weather? Go to weather.com. I mean, it's pretty yeah. good. You know, they're, they're generally pretty accurate. Well, what if, what if I need to know? You know, I, I live within driving distance of three of the most dangerous cities in our, in our country, right? Saginaw, Michigan, Flint, Michigan, Detroit, Michigan. And, you know, I'm not afraid to go to those places, but I sure as heck know which areas not to go to. So I don't need to watch the news and figure out that there was another murder in this place. There was another violent crime there. Like, I don't need to know that. I already, I've already learned that. And these people are like, well, what if I need to know? If there's a tornado coming, I'm fairly certain that your neighbors will let you know somehow, you know, or you'll hear the local alarm. It's so hard for some people to disconnect from the news. But when they do. It's called weather radios. And yeah, Yeah. there's 
And, and if okay, when when stormy situations are in place, and you, if you want to turn the TV on to find out if you're under, yeah, but you're not going to learn about that, you know, on the nightly news. Storms don't have a schedule to come on at six o'clock in the evening. Yeah. And if you watch normal TV, and I'm not saying you should watch too much of it, but if you're watching normal TV, especially local channels, and there is a threat, they interrupted to tell you. I, right. I I still can't remember this book, but I remember reading this book. It might have been one of Robert Kiyosaki's books, and he was talking about this subject. Just disconnect from this crap once in a while. And he was whoever wrote the book said something. All I remember is that they were on a cruise in the middle of the ocean when Princess Diana died. And the whole boat knew about it in five minutes. Yeah. So if you'll find out that a princess died somewhere around the world in France while you're on a boat in the middle of the ocean, if anything really important to you happens, you'll know. Someone will tell you. But then the other thing is, is, is that actually really important? I mean, did that does the death of Princess Diana really affect no, you? Is that that's that's the point also that like okay they they found out about this and it didn't even matter. Right. right. Uh-huh. I know some people are like, oh, my God, the princess was well, – you have your own problems. You should find your own counselor, whatever. And I'm sure to the people that were actually family members and all, it was important. But to me, I, I'm sorry. I th- There's there's people that die every day tragic deaths. And I, as a human being, I have empathy for all of them. But honestly, if I sat around and worried about that, I'd never get anything done. Yeah, it doesn't directly affect you. And, and because now the news wants to make you think that it does, right? Uh, type of little control stuff here, right? But the fact is, is yeah, you we can't in order to move on with our lives, you know, in order to go on another Einstein quote is, uh, you know, in order to keep your bicycle balanced, you have to keep moving, you know, you have to keep going forward. But you can't do that if you're going to worry about everybody that died. Uh, you know, or what's happening overseas and whether, you know, th- what's the status of the Greek economic system. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, <laughs> it, it doesn't, it doesn't directly affect us. You know, look outside, you know, open your door, stand on your porch, look around, you know, worry about that. That you can manage. You can manage that. You know, look at, look at who's sitting around the dinner table or actually do that for once, you know, sit around the dinner table. And that's what matters. And you're counseling addicts, right, too. So, like, if someone drinks a beer once in a while, no one cares. But there's people that are alcoholics, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And when you're dealing with an alcoholic, it's not like, you know, you can still have some beers, right? It's like, okay, dude, you are addicted to alcohol. We got to get you off 100% cold turkey. You can't be a recreational user. That's why you're an alcoholic. So when you're dealing with somebody that's, like, addicted to worrying about this stuff, you have to break them from it the same way I would break uh, an, an addict to a drug. It, it, it works essentially the same way, with just without the actual intake of chemicals. I mean, yeah. you know, we, we become obsessed with knowing. You know, uh, out, uh, out in Utah, I had a client who was obsessed about the news. I mean, woke up. Check the check CNN.com. Watched watch the seven o'clock news. Listen to the news on the way to work. Read the newspaper at work. Checked it on his lunch break. Listened to it on the way home. Watched the five o'clock news, the ten o'clock news, right? And I said, stop, don't do it. Now he was uh, he was from he, he was of Latin descent, so he he said okay, and he he had some skin in the game, so to speak, regarding uh, a handful of years ago about what was going to happen with immigration and stuff. But so he was really actually worried about it, but. I said, what are you going to do about it? You're not going to do anything. So there's no reason to know about it. 
Turn it off for a week. Come back next week. Tell me what happens. So he comes back next week. He's got this huge grin on his face. And you know, he thinks I'm the greatest thing ever because I provided him something that, you know, to me seemed kind of obvious, but, you know, was new news to him. I said, so what happened? He goes, I danced with my kids. He and his wife taught his kids cultural dances from their heritage. They spent the whole week listening to music, teaching. You know, I don't remember what dances it, uh, they were, but, you know, he, he had these kids that were just completely enamored with for this whole week. They, they wanted to learn more. They wanted to learn different steps. And, and one of the things he came in for was the fact that he felt disconnected from his family. Well, it wasn't actually, I mean, he was choosing to watch the news, but in some ways the news pulled him away from his family. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so here's this guy and his wife dancing with his kids after dinner when he'd normally be watching the news. And he's like, I get it. You know, I, I, I see what you're talking about, you know, and it, but it takes choice. You know, you have to, you have to choose not to use the substance or to, or to take that stuff in, you know, and it, it, it's tough sometimes because the fear causes us to want to know more. You know, it's like those times where you get caught watching YouTube videos for five straight hours and it's three in the morning and you now know what happened on 9-11 because you watched all the YouTube videos. Like, it's it, it just sucks you in. But you have to make a choice to come back, you know, and it's tough for people. You know, what, what I always say is you have to ask yourself that question at the end of it. Even if all of this is true... What can I or can I not do about it? If the answer is I can't do anything about it, then how much wasted energy is there into worrying about it or being angry about it or whatever instead of saying what can I do something about that will better my life and the life of those around me? And I think people are very disconnected with that at, at this point. And I, I, I know it sounds a little bit conspiratorial, but I, I feel that it's by design because if I want to control you, If I can get you to spend all of your energy on things you can't control, then I get to very easily affect the things that you could be controlling, and you basically make yourself my slave. Yeah. I mean, if, if I can control Maslow's second level, right, of fear, if I can get you there, then I can make you afraid of your basic needs. This is the food you should eat. You know, this is what you should do with your water. This is how, this is what your house should look like. You know, like, you know, then it gets into that where they can actually manage all the levels below you, where there's still three other levels we haven't even gotten to, but it almost, I mean, in some ways they are important because, you know, the, the goal is to get to Maslow's top, which is self-actualization, but, in terms of what we see most of the day, you know, what I see most of the day, nobody gets past level two because nobody will let them. You know, they're bombarded daily with why you should be afraid so you never get the sense of security to go on to the third level, you know, which, which for the record is, is love and belonging, you know, intimacy, friends, family. You know, if we go back to the story I told you, like managing this, you know, the news kept him from connecting with level three. I take the news away, or he takes the news away. He chooses to do that. I just offer the suggestion. He's now at level three. He's having a greater time with his family, you know, and now he feels better about himself, which is level four: esteem, confidence, achievement, respect. You know, now you're you feel like you're a good person, and then you can go on to this self-actualization, which it's not perfection. It's not it, it you know it's not anything like that. It's just that you see it for what it is. You know, it's like. Um, the best corollary would be would be Neo in the Matrix, right? It's like you, you take the pill and all of a sudden you see it for exactly for what it is. I mean, that's the level of self-actualization, and you choose to manage what's around you. 
not, the other stuff doesn't it really doesn't matter it matters to someone but it doesn't have to matter to you do, do, let's let's kind of transition to this other topic you wanted to talk about today now because this seems like a great place for it, the permissiveness epidemic permissive, permissiveness epidemic the other term you used for it, which is far easier for me to pronounce, the douchebag epidemic. Yeah. Um, we've gotten to the steam on the the pyramid, and, yeah. and the fifth one, and if I remember correctly, is like self actualization, like morality right. and problem solving and releasing prejudice and stuff like that. Being able to accept facts, even if you don't like them, etc. Right? Mm-hmm. Yep, now, exactly. what it seems to me anyway is that what we've done is we have abjugated all of the stuff at the bottom, like the responsibility for our food, our air, our water, everything to government. We've been scared into uh, giving up our freedom. We've lost that that love realm because we're so worried about stuff, we don't have time to see to our own personal relationships. So all of that's in total chaos where that could be managed. Yeah, and yeah. then we've made self-esteem the most important thing in the world, where none of the things that are underneath it uh, matter. So it's important that little Johnny feel good about everything, even sucking. And how does that relate to what you call the douchebag epidemic? Well, some, somewhere along the line, I came across you know that term. You know, the term douchebag has been around for a really long time. Yeah. But somebody started using it to just, and I wish I knew who it was. Um, but somebody started using it to describe these these teens and millennials. But I don't even want to go that far. But it just it seems like it's more of a teenage thing, where they think they are the greatest thing ever with nothing to show for it. They just believe that because they have 17 participation trophies, you know, and they'll show them at their open house, you know, and it's like participation. Partici- like, did you ever actually get a place? You know, did you know? Did you get a second place trophy? You know. And there are all these medals and certificates that say that they're awesome for participating. And so then they go around the world telling everybody, I'm awesome. I, I believe I, I need this. I, I deserve this. But if we go back to Maslow, with no foundation of that, right, they, they have no cares. They, they just believe their needs should be there. They just be, they believe, believe their parents will just take care of them. They don't actually work on that level. And so we got to go backwards to see wh- where this happens. And, and it comes from this idea of, of permissiveness, the fact that through parenting and even through our societies that we just, we give with no expectation of earning it. Um, we don't want to hurt feelings. You know, we don't want to make them scared. We don't want, we don't teach. So, I mean, the fact is, is like you can't teach without disappointment or hurt. Like the best way to learn something is to hurt from it. And you just don't learn. Most people don't learn from from somebody being told that. You know, it's like I use the old electric fence thing. It's like you know, you tell your kid, "Don't, don't go touch that. It's electric fence." And, over, and then pretty soon they're over there, you know, taking a leak on it. And see, told you. You know, they most of the time they don't believe you unless they're just pe- petrified. You know, and they're scared to do anything. And, and that's a whole different level. But. Um, you know, it creates the sense of entitlement. I, I breathe, therefore I should get insert whatever, you know, video game, Xbox, what have you. And then we go back to the parents who just, they want to give more and work less with their kids. They they shy away from the old ways and they they just, they don't want to deal with the emotion of kids being sad or hurt. They just want to make them happy. And at no point is happiness 
all the time ever exist in our world. You know, it's a combination of all emotions. So, I mean, I don't know. It. We just got done watching the movie Inside Out with uh, uh, from Pixar. You know, we took the kids to go watch that for my wife's birthday. And, you know, they talk about that in there. It was, from my standpoint, it's an excellent movie. Mm. It's an excellent movie to understand how emotions play a role. It can't just be one. You cannot make everybody happy. It's a recipe for failure. It's a recipe. It's actually a recipe not for failure. It's a recipe for disaster. I mean, I didn't get a whole lot of participation trophies. I turned out okay. Yeah. You know, I mean, how many? I, I, frankly, it's, I don't know. It's it, we're that's a whole more time. truth from animated stuff than we um, are from from anything else. I think right now, like like people are willing to say things in like the Lego Movie, for instance, that. That are true that nobody will say in the real world anymore. Um, I don't know the inside out whole storyline or whatever. I heard like jabbering on the background on the TV set. You know, my kids are grown, so you pay less attention to things like that. But what I heard jabbering on one of the news shows was something to the effect of there's like a girl that's a main character that's a normal person. Right. Not a princess. And she's not a supporting character was what this person said. And I thought. That's mostly true, that in an animated show, uh, for the last 50 years, if you were a girl and you were in a, like a Disney movie and you were uh, in, a, in it, you were either a princess or you were a supporting role. You were not the main character and not a princess, right? Yeah. And I thought, you know, that could be part of why our young girls are so screwed up in the head. And, you know, I think every father wants to dote on their little girl and make her a princess, but there's no princesses in this country. Like there's this craving desire for them in some warped mental state that some people have, but that's not how the world works, you know? Um, and, and there's an, if, if you raise people with this belief, then you have an identity crisis all the way up to marriage. So if you're a princess, then your husband should be Prince Charming or whatever. And that ain't going to happen. We're men. We fart. We stink. I mean, we're, we're men, and we're supposed to be men, in, in spite of society trying to destroy that, too. And this false drama that's in the minds of our children coming up causes a lot of confusion about the way the world really is. And then they're actually hurt by the way the world really is. I see, you know, so many males come into my office and 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 I choose the word males very specifically because I see so few men come into my office. And and I don't think it's a coincidence um at all because I think people that know how you know there's an epidemic there too about how we have males but not very many men. Um but it it works the same with with women too. I mean uh yeah, there's no princess. It's a little girl from Minnesota who likes hockey, you know? I mean, it's pretty cool that She's very normal in terms, but she, you know, she's not the main character. The emotions in her head are, and the emotions are battling because they want her to be happy and they want her to be happy. And essentially they figure out that that's actually not the best way to live. The best way to live is to embrace all emotions. You know, like I tell people, it's like, I want to be happier. Okay. Well, your, your parents just died like two weeks ago. I mean, I'm not worried about the person crying at the funeral I'm worried about the person laughing hysterically at the funeral. Like, happy at that point does make, not make any sense. You know, like, we have to, feeling is important, negative or positive. You know, we gotta go with that. And, but no, I, so I'm gonna take a pill then, or I'm gonna do this, or I'm gonna drink it away, and then that spirals into all these other issues because we just can't fathom hurting. 
Yeah, I mean, really, wouldn't if you if you were like forced into a situation where you had to be around somebody for let's say a week, mm-hmm. and during that week the person never stopped smiling, wouldn't you think there's something wrong? Like this person's on dope or something? Like this is not human to behave this way. I'm, what the Heath Ledger's Joker from Batman comes to my mind when you say that. You know, and there's no more, there's no creepier person in c- cinema that I know of that than the way that Heath Ledger portrayed the Joker. You know what I mean? Like. That's just not normal. Yeah. You know, it, it's creepy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think we lost a great actor when we lost him. I I really do. I, I don't I don't know anything about the guy's like history as a human being, but as an actor to be a and there's some scuttlebutt that it was like that role that sent him over the edge, which I don't know if you really get into that character, if you're already on the edge, I could see it being the thing that shoves you off the other side. And you, and you know, you hear stories about that, about certain actors that play certain roles that kind of lose themselves for a while or maybe altogether if they decide to take their life or get into substances or something. So, I mean, acting is, honestly, acting is a very, very sad thing. It's a very sad job because you spend your entire life not being yourself. And when, in fact, we should all be striving to actually be as much of ourselves as we possibly can. So, um, you know, I feel sorry for a lot of actors, actually, because I don't know when they actually get a chance to be that. Yeah, it makes, that makes me think of Robin Williams. Like, that was the yep. guy that was always on, always funny, always laughing, always happy, and not just in movies, but when in an interview or a performance or whatever. And to me, that that had to make the sorrow in the guy's life so much worse. And I, I think that has to have at least something to do with his decision to kill himself. Could, could you imagine? I mean, like, how lonely was he? Because everybody yeah. only knew the character. Like, who actually knew him? You know, and he can't... You know, if, if, if we ran into Robin Williams, um, I'd like to think I'd ha- I would have handled it differently. But a lot of people, when they run into those actors, they want them to portray their characters, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think Jim Carrey actually does. He's spoken out quite a bit from that, and um, you know, in terms of everybody wanted to be Fire Marshal Bill, you know, from In Living yeah. Color, and and you know, and he's really tried to stretch himself out and try to be as much of a real person as he can, and he's pretty out there on some other things. But yeah, um, the but fact is, is control even yeah. the, the hunter. That's that's <laughs> interesting. I have a story about him that's that's kind of interesting. I, I hunted a ranch in South Texas. For, for pigs. And uh, the owner tells a story one night sitting around the fire, and he says, yeah. He said, Jim Carrey came here and hunted. And uh, I said, really? He goes, yeah. And he said, I had this, you know, somebody made arrangements for him and said, this this guy's coming as a celebrity. He doesn't want to be treated like a celebrity. He just wants to be left alone. And this was a pretty cool ranch, and the owner would sit out at the campfire. It was like a three-day hunt, and they would sit out at the campfire with you every night, and everybody just sat around and drank beer. And he said, he came in. First day, he shot this little pig, wasn't much bigger than dog, sat at that fire for three nights in a row with a grin on his face and never said a word. <laughs> you know, and that's probably good for him. I mean, like I said, there's some other things that you and I probably both politically disagree with him about, but in fact, we definitely politically disagree with him about. <laughs> but when, when it comes to making the point that we're making here, being able to not try to be the person people expect you to be all the time. Um, and I got a new way to answer the question, the, the statement now when people say, when I meet you, you're just like you are on the air. Absolutely. That's because I don't want to kill myself. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, that's why I'll be angry or sad or upset or happy or, or whatever, because being anything other than yourself 
with some allowance for being respectful of others, results in misery. I mean, that's what I learned for the first, you know, 30 years of my life, and I've worked really hard not to do that anymore. It, it's the epitome of misery, and, and so many people are doing that. They need to be something else. I, uh, I'm thankful I figured that out a long time ago because I was told how to be a psychologist. You know, don't interact with your clients, don't ever do this, you know, don't give them a piece of gum or else they'll come back and murder you or whatever type of fear that they put in you, you know, um, you know or, you know, some sort of fatal attraction like Glenn Close is going to come kill all my chickens or something. But the thing is, is that it, it took me a while, but I figured out, like, to be the best therapist, the best psychologist I can be, I got to be myself, you know? And so people walk in and like, Oh, I didn't expect this at all. Well, because you've been trained to think that I'm some sort of, you know, uh, I got a tweed jacket smoking a pipe with gray hair and a leather couch type of thing going on. And that's not me, you know, on Fridays I'm in jeans and that's because it's jean day. And that feels, <laughs> I mean, that's just the way that it is here, you know? So, yeah. Uh, you know, if, if you're real with people, it gives them a chance to be real with themselves. And, you know, I've had clients tell me that this is the only 45 minutes to an hour in my week where I can actually be myself. And that's sad. You know, I mean, that, that is, is sad. I mean, that is really sad. And I'm glad that I can offer that to them. I'm glad I can er encourage them to do that. And you know, I, I got this old lady dropping F-bombs one day because she wanted to, you know, and she's like, I can't say that. It's like, you know what? it's a perfect time to do it because you're pissed and he deserves it. And so now she's doing it and she feels better for it, you know, but that you've got to be ourselves. And most of us have no idea even who that is. Yeah. It, when it comes to our kids and, and this permissivist epidemic though, um, what set this all in motion? And like the, I, this seems to be something that is 30 to 40 years old at the oldest. Where did this all go to shit? Because I didn't grow up this way, and, and I was convinced as I started to see this in people a little bit younger than me that there was this like great divide, and it was people you know younger than me that that were this way. And then as I kind of branched out, I realized that like no, uh -uh. uh, this was going on when I was a kid. I just lived in a rural area where it wasn't as prevalent, and be, the, like the kids today, they're being raised by people mostly my age, age, and. They're the ones doing it. So when the hell did this go wrong? Is this all back to Dr. Spock or what? I think, I mean, I don't have a clear view. I have theories, right? Okay. And one of the theories I have, especially here in the state of Michigan, is the fact that you could walk, in, you know, in the 60s and, and even into the 70s, you could walk out of high school with who knows what grade, walk down to the street to the auto plant factory, and be making awesome money right away. And that was... That was a that was a given. Like they were all there was factories everywhere, and at worst you'd be thirty thirty miles away, or you'd be close to a shop that was providing the parts for that factory, right? So these people are making great money with, and and then they just well I can when I was a kid I wanted all this stuff I'm just going to buy all this stuff for my kid, and they didn't really think about how that might impact parenting. But so then these kids grow up with no idea of structure, uh, no idea of how to actually earn, how to work hard. Like they see their dad work hard, but they never had to work hard to earn the Nintendo or, or what have you. Like it was just given to them. And then all, and then it just becomes this ongoing thing because those kids now are the parents and they have no clue how to parent. No idea. I mean, they, well, I, I buy them all this stuff and they just not happy. They just want more. Well, no shit. I mean, they're kids. They have no idea what they want. 
you know, there's no structure. And, you know, if we go back, I, I remember I only heard of it once of a kid getting spanked. It was in first grade. And I remember hearing it because the kid cried out from the other room. And then it was done. Uh, it would be about 1985 or so. And, you know, I'm not an advocate for spanking. I think most things can be done. But if somebody chooses to do that and they're doing it in an appropriate way, you know, th- that's their choice. But now that kid will call DHS and the parent will be investigated for abuse because they spanked their child. I mean, yeah. my father-in-law, I have a niece and a nephew. I have two nieces and a nephew and another one on the way. But he, when, when they were just the niece and the nephew, my father-in-law took them to McDonald's to get ice cream cone. And as they were on their way there, it was raining, like pouring rain. So he parked at the parking spot as close to the door. And he looks at these two kids who need to be carried in. So he grabs the, the oldest girl and says, I want you to, he grabs her and sits her in the seat and says, stay here because she knew she would stay. The other one, you know, my, my nephew was like two years old. And, he, and so he kept the nephew buckled in on the car, ran back out, grabbed my nephew, put him in the seat. And now they're in there getting ice cream until DHS comes by because somebody in the store reported them for abandoning their child, the child in the car. Mm. That's the world. It was like all logic played into that was the, the best thing to do to not get everybody soaking wet except for him. He was trying to protect the kids. But somebody called Child Protective Services on him because he left the car, he left the child in the car buckled for 27 seconds at most. Do you know what I mean? And that's, but that's what everybody's doing. You know, they're reporting because we have to protect the kids. We have to protect the kids. (laughs) Kids are more resilient than, than, than adults. I mean, they can deal with stuff a lot better than we can most of the time. And, and if we don't actually let them hurt, if we don't provide situations where they can be dis- where they can get disappointed, they won't learn. Um, you know, I, I think as Dave Ramsey has stated, do, do you want your kids to have a twenty dollar disappointment at age seven, a two hundred dollar disappointment at age fourteen, or a two thousand dollar disappointment at age nineteen? You know, like have them disappointed early. And then they will learn and maybe never have that $2,000 disappointment. And that would put them in a way better situation. So we don't want our kids to hurt. And by not letting them hurt, they grow up into this whole idea of I can get everything I want. And that's kind of where we're heading. Well, and it, it, it's transferred into what people call millennial entitlement. And I don't I, – I have mixed emotions on that. Because there's no doubt that there's millennial entitlement syndrome, okay? Mm-hmm. It, it exists. But I also know there's a lot of people in that age group that are not those kids, right? And right. I think that whenever you single out a group, everybody in that group's like, hey, whoa, hey, hey, you know, <laughs> right? Some people know where that's from. <laughs> but so, like, and there are. There, I, I hear from 19, 20-year-old kids like, hey, dude, I, don't don't put this on me. I, you know, I, I grew up on a farm or whatever. But this entitlement thing does exist, and I think it is partly from – or maybe mostly from this concept that everything you do is good. You're a winner all the time. There are no losers. Like you were talking about how the person has like 13, you know, participation trophies. And like, did you ever get one for placing? And the sad thing is that kid might be able to look at you dead in the eye and go, what? No one got that. There is no place. Right. right? Like there wasn't like first, second, third, and then, and then participation. There was only participation. And my real fear of this is there's more children 
And we talk about the number of veterans killing themselves. But when I say children, I mean 18, 19, 20, up to maybe 25 years old. Killing themselves today, I feel, and I could be wrong, but I feel that any time in history. And I think it's because if you tell somebody that everything they do is wonderful, eventually they will figure out you've lied to them. Like, I'm not wonderful for any of this crap. And then they don't know what they did that was good. And they feel like they've done nothing good. They feel useless and worthless. And if you want to end up with somebody in a suicidal state, make them feel useless and worthless. Exactly. And, and to actually go along with something you said, it is happening at higher rates than we've ever seen. Okay. And it, I mean, we, we've seen that here. I mean, at, at our agency, it's, I mean, we, we really do throw around the word epidemic here when it comes to suicide. And, and it has everything to do with that. Like, they don't know how to, we've stopped teaching kids how to be resilient, how to deal with stuff. You know, if you don't win, you lose. And if you lose, then you're a loser. And then why, if you're a loser, then why be around? Like, you know, I mean, I remember, so I'm sitting with my grandfather and we used to always play checkers and he smacked me. I mean, he, he beat me every day for, I don't know how long I can't even count, but I don't remember them. I sure as heck remember the day I beat him. Of and course you do. Cause he never gave up. But one day I beat him. And from there, I beat him more and more and more. And it was because I actually did it. He didn't give in. He never would have gave in. And that is, the, that is a meaningful memory. You know, that is a meaningful memory. For, but I don't know if any of these kids have these meaningful memories. You know, it, so, yeah, they, they go on. They have no idea how to deal with disappointment because they've never had to face it. And then all of a sudden they start thinking, well, I know how to get out of it. And they, their brain starts going down that rabbit hole of, well, if I didn't exist anymore and well, could I do that? And, you know, they start climbing that ladder and all of a sudden they're at a scary point, you know, and the fact is, is there's, there's nothing, if somebody wants to do that, there's not, if somebody wants to, to kill themselves, there's really nothing anybody can do. We can try. I mean, I, I, I'm skilled in the ability to try to talk people off that ledge, so to speak, but that doesn't mean they can't look me in the eye and say, okay, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to do it. And they don't, and they can walk right out and go do it and go do it. You know, it, it's a scary thing. And we've lost a lot of people because of it. And it goes back to that hopelessness. It's it. I don't have any hope because I don't have the skills to get myself out of this. And that comes back to this idea of parenting. Like, you know, it, it isn't really, I mean, from my opinion, it isn't the millennials fault in it, it's more of the parents' fault for not teaching those skills, but then they didn't get those skills from before. And it's it's a generational thing. If we go back, I mean, I know how my dad was raised, and you know, it it was the way that a lot of people were back then. And um, man, he's hardworking. He knows what to do. He's faced some tough things. He's got himself out of it. He's, he he keeps on going. You know, and as we look at as how people get younger and younger, we don't see that. I, I don't know what to do. I don't even know how to apply for a job. I'll just sit here and play video games in the basement. And, you know, that's our stereotypical view of the millennials. And the fact is there are a lot of millennials who want to to work hard, who want to go do this. They have no idea how. No one taught them. Hmm. And, you know, I don't know if we need – maybe that's a course. You know, maybe that's a – we need to develop some sort of course on life skills or something. I don't know. But I don't want to do it. I'm too busy. Yeah. <laughs> so – yeah. But we, I do see them in here. I see them in, and and all. It comes back down to just try. Don't be afraid of failure. I mean, failure is the absolute necessity to success. I mean, you know, the the only person that is the true failure is the person that stops trying. 
I feel that we're robbing these kids by taking away the opportunity to fail, that we're literally stealing from them and by not letting them experience any adversity. I mean, I tell a story about my grandfather, and and I tell it to older folks, they laugh and think it's kind of funny, and that's why you turned out the way you did, and it's good. And I tell it to younger people, they're horrified. And it's when I was about eight years old, I was mowing the lawn. Now, when you tell this to somebody who's like 25 right now, (gasps) they're already freaked out because you were eight and you had a lawnmower, right? Oh, my God, that's dangerous. And you're alive? Congratulations. You know? Yeah. You know, and I ran over this nest of these wasps that were living in the ground. And one, and I was had no shirt on. Oh my God, you had no shirt on. That's, that's even, you'd have safety equipment, right? Jesus, you know. Objected. Hold Did on, you have... get to the story, you know, and you're trying to get there because they're freaked out before you even get to what happened. So. Did you have sunscreen on? That's a very important no, question. No sunscreen. Oh, true. In July, yeah. it was awful. Oh boy. And, and they paid me money for it. That's even worse. But, so what happens is the wasp flies up, stings me right dead center in the chest. And I'm eight. So I let go of the lawnmower. It shuts off. I kill the wasp with my hand. I'm holding this dead wasp in my hand. I have a welt on my chest the size of half an apple. I run to my grandfather. And since I'm eight, I'm, <laughs> he looks at it. And he doesn't say, you know, effing. He says the word. And he goes, effing hurts, don't it? Go see your grandma. She'll fix it. That was the sum total of sympathy I got. So I run in the house with this dead, this dead insect, right? And I'm okay. I'm not going to die, you know? And the, the old lady says, well, throw that away. Come over here. She dumps my hair comb on it. She says, now go finish cutting the grass. Now, there'd be all kinds of CPS calls over that today, right? But what it taught me was, okay, it didn't kill you. You're not having an allergic reaction. You're okay. And if you go to grandma with a problem that ain't really a problem, she's going to dump a cure comb on it. So don't go there unless it's really a problem. <laughs> and you end up ha- learning just how, like, okay, sometimes something happens. And if you have a commitment to get something done, well, you see it through and you get it done anyway. I'm sure if I'd cut my fingers off, I would have been taken to the hospital. But being stung by a wasp or a bee wasn't grounds for not finishing the grass. Right. And, you know, and, and that was it. It was the end of it. It was... and. and I can't see a parent, even if, you know, I would do that a little softer than my grandfather did, but he was World War II generation. That's just how they were. But I'm not going to like act as though this, you know, the, the, the kid's going to die over something like this. And, and I think that when we take that away and letting people fight through something, we're just screwing up their brains. Right. And, and the thing is, is like, most people wouldn't even have that opportunity because no one's going to give a lawnmower to an eight-year-old. It's like, oh, when you get a driver's license, we'll let you do it or something, you know. And like, I don't remember those questions on the exam, but you know, it's like, so you know, we 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 do a variety of different things on our place. And this year, I asked my son; he's seven. I said, "Hey, you want to take some of this money you saved up, and you want to you want to put it out here and, and do something." You know, and at first he really wanted to do quail, and I, just, I, I had to talk him out of it, and that was tough because he really wanted to do quail. So we decided on turkeys, right? So he goes and buys four turkey poles, and we've had one die. Um, well, we had, we've had two die because we bought some too. And the, the idea is I want him to know that he can take his money and turn it into something bigger, but chaos could come in and wipe it all out, and that's just how life works. You know, I mean, I know that now so that later on he can make other decisions. Like, I'm trying to invite failure into his life. Sure. You know what I mean? I want to incre- I want to create certain types of situations. I want to create the t- $20 problems. You know, I mean, if he if all of his turkeys died, he's out 32 bucks. Okay? okay. Yeah. I mean, that is not the end of the world. 
I mean, it's a pretty big step for him as a seven-year-old, but that's not going to mean that he's got to live on the streets at 19. Uh, you know, so, you know, so he's taking care of these turkeys. He's hopeful. He's already got some of them sold. So he's got to keep them alive. That's what we need to do. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? We have to, but, oh, but what if they all died? Well, I guess we're going to have a talk about how we need to take care of them better. What or something. do we do wrong? Let's not buy a thousand turkeys the first go, right? Right. And, and it, like, it teaches people a, an understanding of like risk tolerance and what is actually risky. So, for instance, when I bought a second home one time, my brother-in-law, who's up to his eyeballs in debt, who's teaching his kids to become up to their eyeballs in debt, who's married to you know his wife, and they have separate finances, and she's up to her eyeballs in debt. That's not that's not a coincidence, by the way. No, it's not. It's not. Right? <laughs> so, th- I buy this second property. He says that's kind of risky. Okay, I have a piece of real property. I bought it so smart that my house payment on it is lower than your payment on your SUV. That's a depreciating asset, and I'm holding an appreciating asset. If something goes completely wrong in my life, I take my expensive house and I dump it and sell it, and I move into my cheap house. In the interim, I'm going to rent this house to somebody who is paying me enough money to cover the mortgage, taxes, and insurance. Therefore, somebody else is buying my house for me. The worst thing that happens is I lose my tenant for a while and I make a car payment that I don't have because my car is paid for. And you you see that as risky, and I look at what you're doing and think you're risking your entire future. And And you don't think you're taking any risks at all. Because it's considered safe to buy a car. And, and the, the disconnect there, where with your kid, they're learning, okay, yeah, the turkeys could die. But by seeing what kills turkeys, I learn what percentages stay alive, how much money I can get for them. And I actually learn to mitigate and manage risk versus ignore risk. Because now we're right back to where we started, right? Chaos. So I have a plan that uh, accepted chaos. He has a plan that does not accept chaos. But yet my plan looks risky to him. Right, because it's because what if you know what? In and in fact, he has he has no. I mean, debt is all about giving control. If we're going to actually use the word to someone else, they. I mean, he has no management of his finances. Somebody else is controlling it for him. I mean, they they have the power to make some significant decisions against him. Sure. And but it feels safe because that's what everybody's doing. You know, I mean, so I'm I'm you know everybody's walking this direction, so I'm going to walk that direction when in. You know, maybe we should walk off the path. Oh, but a wolf could get you. Yeah, but I'm also going to see some cool stuff. You know, I mean, there's no path here, and I might see a tree that I've never seen before. Or, you know, come across some some cool plants that I might, you know, take with me and put in my put in my hoogle swales or whatever, right? But <laughs> but you know, everybody. I, I use the analogy a lot of times. Like a lot of people are driving on interstates. You know, the in, it, the the freeways that. And, and not in the terms of actually driving on it, in the terms of life. Like, this is the path, you know. They're all, you know, I guess you could say the, the sheep, right? That's the sheep herding path. In chaos, you know, that's where it's controlled. You have, you have things on either side. You're told when to exit. You're told what you can get when you do exit. And if you're not on that road, all kinds of, kinds of chaos can happen. But all kinds of living can happen, too. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean... To quote the the line from Shawshank Redemption, you know, get busy living or get busy dying. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the more profound quotes I've ever heard in movies, and I say it a lot. Now, I'm not telling people to go, you know, actively go try to hurt themselves, but if you're not living, what are you doing? Waiting to die. I mean, that's really, I think, a lot of people, 
I, this is part of why I left the rural community I grew up in. For as much as it gave me, it also gave me a vision of what happens to people that live with complacency. And what I said is that, and this is, I said this in my teens, because it was so evident to me, that what happens here is once a person gets to a point where they can afford a house and they have a job that reasonably pays their bills, they don't do anything in their life for the rest of their life except sit there, work every day, draw a paycheck, dream of retirement, where they continue to do the exact same thing they did before they retired, except that they don't go to work anymore. That their life literally goes into a, like, stall. Like, there's no progress made ever again for the rest of their lives. And they actually seem happy living that way. And to be honest with you, at 17, it's part of why I joined the Army, because it scared the shit out of me that I would turn into that. Because people misconstrue content for happiness. You know, like some of those committee, uh, communities, they, it's, it's misinterpreted that con- being content is happy. Well, if you've ever actually been happy, you'll realize that content is nothing like that. It's just safe. Yeah, happy you know? is when you're on a roller coaster and laughing so hard you feel like you're going to pass out. Right. That's you know, it, happy. <laughs> and but content is like well there's not really a whole lot of danger around here and you know I, I can pay my bills and well, I guess I'd like to go here but I can't afford it so I'm con- yeah, it's okay well you know that's it's, it's it's not much chaos that's true but is it really living or is it just existing and it's it's just completely unprepared for the chaos that will find you eventually like in our talk I'm 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 discovering some things that I've probably talked around a lot of times but one of them is this so. If you live that life that everybody else does, you get a student loan, you go to school, you take on debt for that, you get, and let's say you do get a somewhat decent job, you go on a 30 year plan to repay your student loan, like Dave Ramsey says, you might as well name it and call it a pet by then. It's right, been around yeah. longer than the dog, than two dogs, two generations of dogs in your house. You might as well give it a name. Um, and you do get into that life and then you get Credit cards, you have 2.3 kids, you get the picket fence. You do all the things you're supposed to do, according to society, and you view that as safe, even though you're you're exposed with risk at every level. When chaos comes, it affects that type of life. It affects the majority of the country at the same time. It affects everybody. It's, it's a national disaster, like the 2008-2009 meltdown. It was the big, the biggest disaster that occurred were for people that did everything society says they're supposed to do, right? Poor people and rich people, they broke the rules on either side, didn't really get hit hard by that. Right. But the, but the majority of Americans who followed the rules got hit in the face, right? Now, if you break the rules, then it, it, it stands to reason the most likely time for you to get hit in the face is when not everybody else is being hit in the face. And it's the difference between a neighborhood being hit by a tornado and a state being wiped out by a hurricane. There's other systems of support out there. But when everybody's in the exact same sink, when something happens, it, it does an equal level of destruction across the board. And that's what I think most people are setting them up, uh, themselves up for when they think they're being safe. They're setting themselves up to be hit at a time when everybody's hit and there's no other options for help. It's it's this it's striving to be normal, you know. And I, I and I already told you I don't like the word Thank control. Not, I, not normal. I I hate. I got a joke for you. That's real. <laughs> so my wife has like seventeen varieties of shampoo in the shower, like all women do. I, I don't know what any of this stuff does, but she has this new brand, and it says Normal Person's Formula. 
<laughs> he told her, I can't use that because I'll get struck by lightning. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I, but, I mean, you better not. I mean, who knows? I mean, you're inviting chaos in by using some a formula you're not supposed to use. Yeah. You know, I mean, who knows what will happen. normal but, people. It ain't for me. I mean, I, I really hate hate the word normal. And, and people come in here, I just want to be normal. No, you don't. You do be different. You, I mean, being normal is following the path. You know, I mean, it, and that's not a path you want to be on. I mean, we are all abnormal, and we should embrace it. Uh, we, you know, find how abnormal you are, and, and 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 try to maximize it. No normal person has ever succeeded in what we would label the success in this in this life. They, they they sit in contentment. That's what normal. That's what we're told normal is. I mean, all these other people that we may look at, I mean, you know, we, we, Robin Williams and, and Jim Carrey and, you know, Warren Buffett, I mean, those people aren't normal. I mean, they are the furthest from normal anybody can be, and yet we would describe them as successes. So we're striving, when we're striving for normalcy, we're striving not to be successful. If, if you want to be normal, this is the way I put it. Go to the Texas State Fair and look for the, the prize-winning deep-fried uh, product of the year. And right after they announce it, there'll be a line of about 300 people waiting to get whatever deep-fried crazy thing it is. That is a, an aggregate section of American society. If you want to be normal, you want to be the average of that line. I don't want to be the average of that line. And if you want to give yourself some therapy, folks, go to the Texas State Fair and look at that <laughs> line. And when you say you want to be normal, you want to be that average, the average of that group. I don't want to do that. And the thing is, is through no judgment of their own, you ask them how it is, they'll say, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. Is it really? Or is that what you're saying because you just know you ate the award-winning fried thing? Like, yeah. what is yeah. your actual opinion of it? You might sit there and go home and like, that actually was really gross. But if somebody asked you as you were eating it, like on a, the, if the newspaper person came over or the, the anchorman, oh, you're going to give them exactly what they're looking for. Yeah. Because you know, yeah. I'm going to be normal in that situation. That's why focus groups don't work. Right. That's right. why the Internet's been such a boom to marketers, because you can put up a test page, buy a thousand dollars worth of traffic, dump it in there. And for the first time ever, get an honest opinion of your market about your idea, your product. When they run focus groups, it's impossible to get people to be honest in focus groups. I would say it's impossible. But it's impossible to get enough statistically number of people to be honest to get a statistically viable answer as to will this product sell well or not because they intrinsically want to, people want to please others right yeah especially with perceived authority you give me a clipboard put me in a nice shirt and I'm asking you also I have authority in your mind I, I'm a minimum wage slug that they hired to ask you ten questions on a piece of paper but you think I have authority so you start telling me what I you think I want to hear yeah, and the sad thing is I could take a good product, pepper some stuff in there that makes you believe that the people analyzing it want the result to be negative, and the majority of that focus group will give you a negative response. The further you get away from having actual connection with that person, the more truth you'll get from them. You know, you throw a guy with, you know, I mean, it's, a mag it's, a, it's magical what khakis and a polo shirt will do. It's even more magical what a suit will do. Sure. You know, I mean, and it's just all perception. I mean, like you said, it could be just a guy getting, you know, 725 an hour or something. But if he's sitting there talking, you want to please him. Now, if that person calls on the telephone or sends an email, the fact is you're going to get more truth because sure. 
you're not you're not trying to please anybody. You're I, know, I might as well just give it how it is because I have nothing. I can't make anything up. I, I only have my opinion, so I'm going to put it down. And if I run a Google search for something and I find what looks like a, a good ad for what I'm looking for, and I click on it, and it says, "What do you think of this?" I'm going to be completely honest because I don't. I'm not worried about hurting anybody's feelings. I don't give a, a, a crap who's that. Now me, I don't care. I'll tell you anyway. But you know, I can't even say that because even when I think somebody has a dumb idea, I, I usually tell them it's dumb, but I soften it a little bit because I don't want to hurt the the spirit of let's make something happen. So I'll even cool it down a little bit, and I'm not exactly known for doing that. So what mm -hmm. do you think the average pre-programmed product of our public education system is going to do when you ask their opinion? They follow the herd, and then that that leads to all these other things like. Something that's clearly a bad idea must not be a bad idea because everybody's doing it. Now, I don't know if anybody tells their kids this anymore, but don't you remember your parents saying if, if you know, Tom or Joe or whoever your best friend was jumped off a bridge, would you do it too? And it's like <laughs> we've lost that simple bit of wisdom. Well, yeah, I, I tell kids sometimes that in here just to just for the sake of keeping it alive, and they look at me with like this look that's like, what are you talking about? Like they they don't hear it. They, I mean. It, they're in in some ways, and not all parents, but it almost seems like some some of these parents are they want their kids to fit in. They well, if sure. you jumped off the if you if he jumped off the bridge, he, he probably had a good reason. You better you better you better yeah. do it. Well, if your teacher said to jump off the bridge, well, you know they have a license from the state and everything. Well, right? that's true. You know, you know, I mean, I mean they they must know it's it, it's it's good to do. Let me do it with you. Uh, well, you know, it's, it's somewhere, somewhere somebody I read that school is just a giant advertising agency. And, you know, I, granted, I don't have the clearest view because we homeschool now, right? But the thing is, is it, it's like, you know, when I really look back at it, it's it's 12 to 13 grades of how to be a sheep. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's, it, it's I mean, there's, there, you know, um, somewhere, you know, it's this idea that, you know, intelligence isn't knowledge, um, again, I think it was Einstein or something, but it's it's actually more connected to creativity. But, but there's very little creativity in our schools. I mean, you got to know all this stuff because everybody else knows this stuff, and if you don't know this stuff, you won't be smart. So know yeah. this stuff. And oh man, I mean, the most I ever enjoyed myself in school, honestly, was like my senior year. Um, I needed like two classes to graduate, mm -hmm. and they'd gotten to the point where they'd kind of like crapped on the idea of early graduation at that point like you're not doing that anymore so even if i would have been able to do them in half the year they wouldn't let you graduate early so you take one one semester one the other and you know let it be and i'm like i don't want to sit and, like you could even get out early for work study is what they called it so i did that but there was like all this time like i don't want to sit in study hall for all this time so i took a whole crap load of like what you would call like the 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 simple science courses, right? The ones that are like a, a you know one one half year courses that give you half a credit, and there's a whole you know freshwater biology, you know astronomy stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so I took a whole bunch of them, and I didn't care if I passed or failed because they didn't matter. And I just went there to listen to and learn about these different sciences because I thought they were all cool. I enjoyed the shit out. I got like A's in every single one of those courses right. I'm trying because I did not literally care and I actually wanted to be there. And it was like the only time that I ever wanted to be in a class in school, except for some history and science classes by some enlightened teachers, ever in my existence. And that was like another part of why I didn't go to college because I'm like, I, 
I, I, I need to find something else to do. But like, I realized then I didn't know how to articulate it at 16 years old, but I, I learned then that like you could enjoy learning, but you had to want to learn to enjoy learning. You, you have I to choose doing it. Doing that for our kids. Yeah, I mean, you chose those classes, so you had an investment. You know, it's like the kids that, you know, when I was in school, I was an RA. So I was in charge of a floor of, well, I wouldn't say I was in charge. I, you know, moderated the circus that was a 53 freshman guy floor, you know. And, um, man, there's some interesting stories there. But the thing is, is that the kids that actually worked hard were the ones that had some, skin in the game they were they had to work for it they had to pay the bills and and the kids that were partying and, and, and smoking every night and, and all this kind of stuff and going out you know, of course they didn't really make it but they were somebody was writing their checks for them you know sure. they didn't they didn't choose they just viewed it as an op they just were said this is where you're going to go and so they did it and then they, they didn't because it wasn't their choice they didn't go to class i mean um yeah it's a uh, you see these people who they struggle in school and then five years later they take some college courses and they do well in it mm -hmm. because they chose it. You know, like I want to be here. I'm, I'm paying my good money to learn about this particular topic. And you go back in high school and, and they struggled because they were, they were told they had to be there, you know? So choice is a huge factor. I think um, they also get to the point where they'll like, unless something's a drop dead requirement, if it's not giving them what they're looking for, they'll just drop it and they'll, they'll pick up something else because Realize, oh, I'm paying for this, and this is BS that's just designed to create a tick box for my degree or whatever. It's not giving me anything of value, and since I'm giving my time and money to it, I demand that it give me what I'm paying for. Where the kid that comes out of high school, even if they're working for it, like they've never actually disconnected from the education system long enough to think about it that way. Like, I'm the customer. Like the kids mm -hmm. see themselves as a customer when you send them off to college. They see themselves as being told what to do. Right. I mean, I, and and it is that. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I've actually, I mean, since we've kind of taken our kids out of school, I've thought a lot about this. Like, what is wrong with the school system? And I, I don't think people realize how it actually is a dysfunctional society. You know, people are forced to be together. Yep. And they have to do what they're told. They're essentially trapped in there which creates this idea of I can't make choices for myself. So they have no confidence and they develop this learned helplessness where I, I just have to do it and I have no control. I have no ability to choose. I can't manage anything. And then what happens is, is they're surprised when these, cl these classism type things, the caste systems are created, you know, with the jocks and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, in some smaller schools, you don't see that because it's, it's a little bit more free flowing, but in the big schools, it's always there. I mean, because of how dysfunctional it is. And, and inevitably, when you look at this, the happiest people in high school are the ones that actually don't do very well in society because they mastered the dysfunctional society, not an actual one. Yeah. The, the ones that do the best are the ones you never heard of. Yeah. They, they just, under the radar, just did what their thing. They, you know, they did a little bit of band. They did this. They, they took some extra science classes because it interested them. And then they go on and go about their merry way and... Wow, they just, it, it seems more natural because they didn't get into the, they survived. They survived the dysfunctional society that schools are becoming. And they wanted nothing to do with that type of dynamic once they got done with it. Like, as soon as they didn't have to deal with that crap, they didn't look for it. Where I think the people that do really well and enjoy high school, uh, and I mean like the social cliques at all, they expect life to be that way. And it's not. If you treat a person at a job the way children treat other children in school 
at the very best, you will get fired. You might get arrested. Things that, that people do in school that we just take as like part of the thing and all are considered assault in society. Or you're going to get sued. So there's no place for that in, in the real world. When people say, like, if you homeschool your kids, you're, you're, uh, you're denying them the ability to learn about the real world. What part of the real world are you talking about? There, there, there's no reality there. There's, there's no place where people are forced in the type of interactions against their will like a public school system, especially, as you said, a larger one. Right. I, I mean, I, you know, that's a people are going to hold on to those arguments because of this, what they feel are the social benefits of being there. You know, as I see kids, particularly teenagers, come into my office, there is only social, there is only social, like, freezing. There's no social benefit to schools. I mean, maybe some good schools, and I'm sure someone would call up and say, well, my school is great. Well, they, I'm sure that they do exist and, because there are some schools that actually give a crap and they, they try to do things the right way. But, but most of them don't. Most of them are, I mean, they, they have this, I mean, I, I can't get off the word dysfunction. You know, it's, in, it's, it's all drama. It's all this. It's who likes who. It's all about social accepted, acceptability. You know, if you're not liked by this person, you might as well, well, you might as well just kill yourself because that's, and we see it happening. And, you know, it's, it's sad. And, you know, for an individual, I mean, we're, we're going to co-ops, we're interacting with other parents, we try to get our kids involved in everything possible, and we're going to do some, like, real-world things, like, how about you raise some turkeys and figure out how to work finances, you know, I mean, that seems like a real-world application, and, um, you know, maybe next year he gets eight turkeys, and maybe it gets 12, and then one of these years, they're all going to get some sickness and die, and that's the real world. And Definitely. it will hurt, and you'll be out money, but then guess what, we're going to work hard, make up some more. We'll give it another go, or we'll switch gears. We're but, comparing that to school, right? So, like, when I think back about high school, there's people I think I was good friends with, people that I didn't like, et cetera, teachers I liked, teachers I didn't like. But the reality is if it wasn't for Facebook, I wouldn't have any idea what any of those people were doing now. And I still have very little. But, like, right. the only inkling is to what's going on. Like, there isn't a single person from my high school – that has affected my life in any way, literally from the day they handed me that piece of paper that's supposed to mean something, forward, ever again. But a kid in school can't see that that's going to be the case, and that the part of their life they're going to live in that environment is tiny compared to the rest of their lives. And it hurts both the kid that that doesn't fit in and the one that does. And it might hurt long-term as long as the one that doesn't fit in survives it, it might hurt the one that does fit in a lot more. Like, their life's the one that's totally screwed up. They're the one that ends up, you know, with $150,000 of student loan debt and a degree in communication and a job making $40,000 a year if they're lucky and eventually ends up married with the 2.3 kids and all that end up repeating the pattern. And the one that hated it ends up, you know, founding a company or creating a cure for some disease or something like that because... They don't give a damn, so they do what makes sense. It, and it, it's true. I mean, we, we see it. You've seen it. I'm, I'm sure a lot of listeners can even think about those particular people. I mean, you know, the most, you know, you see these kind of stereotypes in the movies and stuff where, you know, the jock is now the, the loan officer at the local bank. You know, and he went to one year of college and dropped out due to partying, and now he's overweight, and he married the cheerleader, and he's stuck in the 
local bank and trust. You know what I mean? And, and yet, if we think about the people, it's like, man, he's really doing that? Man, he's driving that? Like, and what you find out is that after school, he, you know, this individual barely makes it through. He really liked plumbing. He, you know, he had an opportunity to learn that. And dude gets a van. He's now a master plumber and pulling in six figures because he's willing to go trudge around someone's basement when they won't even go down there. And 10 years later, he's got 16 guys doing it for him. And 16 and, vans. And yeah. now he's, you know, it, and we're talking about a seven-figure thing. You know what I mean? He, so He's going to the guy at the bank for a loan who will never, ever earn as much money as he's about to approve a loan for for this guy to expand his business. And I mean, I mean, one of the perfect TV shows to explain this, and it was done to the extreme to make it funny, but was, you know, remember uh, Married with Children, Al Bundy. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, you know, it peaked in high school. I mean, and that's there's a lot of that, and people want to make fun of that. But I think is we're creating that. So as we wrap up today, like, what do we as parents do to try to make our kids, especially those of us that can homeschool, have the best experience they can, but yet instill this resiliency and this attitude toward making things happen in their lives in our kids, so they can do just that for themselves. Let them fail. You know, I mean. And, and you may actually want to create situations in which they will and let it hurt. And you don't like throw them off of the roof and say, oh, did that hurt? You know, not that kind of stuff. I'm talking about emotionally, like, you know, if they like, want to like do something. Kids bike, like take the training wheels off, let the kid fall. But that doesn't mean when he gets the second pedal and he's making it a little bit, kick his ass over, right? Like, no. Yeah. <laughs> do like grandma did, right? Put some put something on it, rub it and say, okay, now get back out there and let's give it another go. You know, show them that you're there. Show them that you care and that you will be there for them when it gets really, really tough. But when it's only kind of tough, they might need to figure it out for themselves and that they can. They have the ability to do that. You know, even even a six year old can probably figure it out. They might need a little more support than, say, a 14 year old. But if you're really into it with your kids, if you really know them, it won't be hard to see what they need if you let them fail. You know, uh, you know, let them buy let them buy the stupidest thing in the store and spend all their money on it and then have a talk with them when it breaks before it gets home and say, well, maybe we should have researched that a little bit better. That was a pretty big purchase. You know, don't say no. Say, are you sure? Yeah. Um, and, and let them buy it with their own money. Don't just, they never, nobody ever values. You know, I had a, I ran a group once where we had a pretty eclectic, uh, age range you know we had a guy who was 25 and we had a guy who was 65 and we were talking this 25 year old guy he just didn't get it he did not get anything he was asking people in the group for a bike he was trying to figure out how to get a bike and the 65 year old guy looks over him and says i worked two summers delivering papers to get a bike and it is the greatest thing i've ever done i worked so hard for that get out there and figure out your own way to get a bike don't ask for handouts, you know, and, and it was a 25 year old who didn't know how to acquire a bike because he because he couldn't afford one from Walmart Yeah, because he didn't have $90, which you is know? ridiculous. I mean, at 25, if you can't come up with $90, you got a bigger problem than not having a bike, man. Right. And, and but the thing is, is like if you want to be creative, you can get a bike. You could probably figure out a way to barter a bike. You know, you I mean, on Craigslist, you could probably find somebody giving one away and it has something wrong with it, find somebody giving another one away that has something wrong with it. And if you can bum a ride to pick the two of them up, probably salvage both of them to make one that works. And, like, 
So that's something that I think that the average 20-year-old today could never conceive of. Taking something that somebody else was going to throw away and fixing it. Yep. Or, or, or making turning something that's useless into something useful. You know, I mean, that's an art that, that isn't around much anymore. It's all by new. Oh, this bookshelf doesn't work. Let's get this compressed board. It's $30 at Walmart. You know, it's like, well, what if what if you took a pallet and it, it, I bet you could do something creative with it? And that's becoming more popular and it's all over Facebook. But it's actually kind of cool because a pallet is a throwaway thing. It's It's useless to the people that have them, but it can be very useful in certain applications. Do you notice that, though, that, like, people that would never think of that, if they see somebody else do it, all of a sudden are like, wow. And when they try it themselves, it, it, it it's very enjoyable. People start thinking right away, like, even if they don't do it, like, I could make a business doing this or whatever, and at least get, like, the mind engaged with something a little bit out of just this doldrum mainstream BS. Yeah, I mean... You want to talk, we talked a little bit before about, you know, addictions and getting addicted to fear. Like, that's a positive almost addiction. Like, I can do almost anything. Like, that's the direction we need to go, that belief in self. You know, now we're climbing up Maslow's hierarchy, right? Like, wow, I took this pallet and I turned it into this. And, you know, I, I made a chicken feeder out of two worm canisters, some scrap piece of wood and an old piece of field tile. Okay. Like, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of those, by the way. Uh, they, they work really, really well. But the thing is, is that, I, I look at those and I'm so proud of them and it's all junk. It, you know, it, I mean, the most expensive things in there are the screws. And I, I want to show people my raggedy looking chicken feeders when they come over. And they're like, well, why didn't you get this $20 one from Tractor Supply or whatever? And they never work. That's why, <laughs> you know, they, they break. They're plastic. And like when you start learning what you can do, you then believe, you then begin to believe that you can do most anything if you try. And then when you find out you can't, you put it in the you put it on the shelf. You say, okay, not so good at that one. Let's try something else. And and the fear goes away. And you know that's that's a good place to be. Yeah, definitely. So real quick here, uh, I've got a website here that I don't think is going to lead me to your practice. Dandelionhills.com. Can you tell us what that's about? And people maybe want to check that out. Yeah, that's you know that's our little homestead. You know we. Um, you know, it's mostly my, my wife's doing and then I'm, I follow, but you know, I'm the grunt labor there, right? So, um, I'm the one that has to run the broad fork and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, we're only two years into this thing. You know, I mean, we're, when it comes to new, we're new. I mean, we're, we got chickens, we're raising broilers, we have hens and uh, a few turkeys, like I said before, and started with bees and, you know, we're still learning on that one and, and essentially just trying to do our own stuff. You know, I mean, trying to manage the chaos that is our food system and, and, and try to get as much management of it as, as we can, you know? Um, so in doing that, you know, we're, we're also trying to provide good food in an area. We, we live in a highly, highly, uh, mechanized agricultural establishment area. You know, it's, I mean, we are, we want to talk about not being normal. We are abnormal here. And, um, why would you spend $4 for eggs? Well, that's actually coming back to bite them a little bit because now all the eggs are $4 and ours look pretty darn good compar in comparison. But um, it's because they're not raised in a battery with six other people. And so we're trying to do education here. We're trying to do our own thing. And, um, you know, that's our website. We, we try to blog on there. I try to make them interesting and show failures, right? We, we Somebody brought that up the other day. Why doesn't anybody show their failures? Uh, read that out. You know, you'll find out what we really screwed up on a couple times. So, 
Um, but we learn. You just keep trying. You know, it's like, you know, we, we really have stunk at bees lately. <laughs> and um, But we're not giving up because they're fun. I mean, honestly, some of the most relaxing times are standing over a beehive. And I have, you would not think that. But the the buzz, the hum, they're doing what they're doing. And they know. Bees know. And I know probably Michael Jordan will be able to talk about that too. But um, they know when you're, you have to be calm or they'll know. And so, yeah, we're going to have more bees for sure. Sure. But that's that's just us, you know, Dandelion Hills. That's, um, there's actually a little entendre there because, well, obviously we know how dandel, how important the dandelion is in permaculture. But uh, we live right next to uh, my father-in-law um, who is uh, from suburban Detroit who believes in the greenness of the green lawn and um, – so it's it's a really cool juxtaposition if you look at our houses. Uh, we have this beautiful flowing field of dandelions in the spring, and he has none. And people think his lawn looks great, and we just chuckle because we're we're just not going to educate him right now. You know, maybe later, but we know. So it's fun. Very cool, man. Well, hey, I appreciate you being with us today. And uh, if you want to come back on the show for another subject, just fill out the guest form. We'll have have you back anytime. All right, great. Thanks for having me, Jack. All right, folks, and with that today, this has been Jack Spearco today along with Trevor Grice, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
shirt.